body is one thing, but the the soul is another. And so they've suffered loss, these young uh, folks. But if they could gain wholeness in being reconciled to the Lord Jesus, then they'll be glorified bodies to come, right? So pray for this weekend. It makes me proud to be able to serve with Brother Chuck. That is a good thing. He doesn't have to be doing this, but that's what he's doing. So we'll remember him. Well, we are in uh, Jeremiah chapter 25. And just a word to give you in advance, we'll not finish it today. I'm on next week as well, and I want to stretch it so I don't have to study. (laughs) We might as well be honest. No, no, no. There's a lot in it. We'll go slow. We'll see how far we go. Uh, Jeremiah 25 today. Look what it says, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah. When? Well, in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. And that also happened to be the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Based upon these chronological cues, we know this took place in 605 B.C. 605. So those of you who are good with math, how long ago was that, roughly? A long time. Thank you, mathematicians. Appreciate it. (laughs) Higher math. In this case, lower math. A lot of years. You're right. Like 2,600 or something? But here's the point. Uh, This word, which came to Jeremiah, came from Almighty God because Jeremiah was the recipient of it. It wasn't to stay with him. It was to be communicated to the people of the day and in our day. But here's the point. What you and I are reading here is about 2,600 years old, preserved with accuracy down to this very day by uh, the Most High God who superintends his communique. The assurance that what we're reading in the Bible is reliable is the fact that God inspired it. What he inspires, he sustains and preserves. 2,600 years later, we're reading it. I think it's marvelous. So this took place in 605 B.C., and in that year, interestingly, Nebuchadnezzar, Babylonian king, came into the um, land of Canaan, it was called, the Holy Land, you might know it, modern-day Israel, conquered it, along with uh, Syria, at a place called Carchemish, uh, which is along the Euphrates River. And you know where the Euphrates is located now. It's in Iraq, primarily. And there he defeated the Egyptian forces. Nebuchadnezzar did, and so went on this wild, expansive conquest in 605 B.C. So now we know the year. Verse 2, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, from the 13th year of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, even to this day, these 23 years, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I've spoken to you again and again, but you've not listened. 23 years of ministry. He says right here, I've been doing this for 23 years. I've been preaching, I've been teaching, I've been prophesying, I've been speaking to y'all for 23 years, again and again. What's the result? You haven't listened. 
We know that Jeremiah's ministry extended to about 40 years, so this is about midterm in, in the um, extent of his ministry. And for at least half of that, he hasn't gotten good results. You think he ever got discouraged? Oh. You know why he got discouraged? Because as far as we know, he's just a human. He's not an angel. He has emotions. And even God's people have emotions and can get discouraged. This was a battle. I'll bet a million times into this, he thought, I don't want to do it. I want to quit. This is not good. I want success. I'm tired of being faithful. Why don't you show me some success? He didn't say any. He said, I've spoken to you again and again, and you have not listened. Not only that, verse 4, the Lord has sent to you all his servants, the prophets. Here's the phrase, again and again, but you haven't listened nor inclined your ear to hear. Same result. Jeremiah is saying, I've done this for 23 years because God told me to, but it's not just me. Maybe it's a personality conflict. Maybe you don't like my style. But God sent to you a team of communicators, many messengers, the prophets. They met with the same result. You did not listen. Verse 5, saying, turn now. What's another word for that? Turn now. Repentance. So, yeah, you know, repentance, kind of a term we don't use a lot. It has theological connotations. But if you break it down, it means to turn, meaning you're going in a direction. Repentance means you've turned from it, and now you're going in a different direction. That's what it means. It means a change of direction. Turn now, everyone, everyone, collective, from his individual. Ah, So the nation needed to turn Repent, uh, but the buck stopped with each person. Turn now, everyone, from his evil way. Our nation needs to turn. There's no question about it. We pray for it. We are experimenting to see how we can do life without God. It isn't working. So we pray the nation would turn to him. Uh, But you also have to think about your own situation. What about your own Position with reference to the giver of life, the creator. So there's a collective responsibility, corporate, but then there's a personal and individual responsibility to repent as well. Turn now everyone from his evil way, the evil of your deeds, and dwell. So you see the phrase turn, and then the one that follows a few words later, dwell. We don't get this in English, but the Hebrew recipients got this word play because the word turn in Hebrew is shubu and the word dwell in Hebrew is shebu. Shubu, shebu. It's a word play, similar sounding on purpose. God is giving them the formula, if you will, for success. Turn from your wicked ways and to me who gave you the land and put you in the land and you'll be able to stay in the land. See? So he diagnosed their um, political problems, (laughs) and he said it's that you've turned away from me. If you want to have staying power, if you want to be settled, if you want to have a measure of stability in the land, which I indeed have given you, then turn back to me. There it is. Now, you see something implied in that concept, which is quite interesting. God is saying to Israel, I've given you the land, but you will not enjoy being in it. If you turn from me, that is a very important principle to get. 
God did not say, Israel, I gave you the land, but you have forfeited the land because of your disobedience. No. He said, I've given you the land, and you have forfeited enjoyment of the land because of your disobedience. Remember, God gave the land to Israel through Abram, Abraham, a covenant with him in which God said, I will give this land to your descendants. He did not say, I will give this land to your descendants if you will do anything. If God said, I will if you will, that makes the covenant a conditional covenant. But it's not. It's an unconditional covenant. But there is a condition on the enjoyment of the land. That's the one with Moses. That's Mount Sinai. Those are the commandments. So God is saying, I gave you title deed. You've got the real estate. It's a settled issue. You can't forfeit it because you did nothing to get it. However, you cannot experience full possession of the land, unobstructed enjoyment of the land, if you disobey me. Now, that is a, a very, I hope, helpful parallel to our situation under the new covenant. Under the new covenant, God said, I will. I will save you. If you will what? Nothing. I will save you if you will (laughs) ask me. He did not say, I will save you if you clean up your act. If you start living a life that's pleasing to me. He did not say that. Uh, The new covenant is unconditional. Salvation. Therefore, you can't forfeit it. But what can you forfeit? Enjoyment of salvation. The most miserable creature on earth is a saved person in sin. Not an unsaved person in sin. Sin is fun. You used to do it, right? Sin doesn't make you miserable. The world is sinning like crazy with a big smile on their face. But when you have the Spirit of God in you, and that happens at the point of salvation... It's a flesh versus spirit conflict you never had before. So the flesh still enjoys sin, but the Holy Spirit convicts you of it. So you cannot sin the way you used to sin. Therefore, you're in misery. You didn't lose your salvation. You just can't enjoy it. The Old Testament parallel is just what I shared. Uh, God delivered them from Egypt and put them in a place. They didn't do anything to deserve it. But they have to obey him to stay in the land and to enjoy it. So God is saying you have the land, but you're not going to dwell in it. And in fact, God's going to use, you'll see, Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Babylonians, to remove Israel from the land for how many years? Do you know in this context? Seventy years. So be careful. It's not permanent. It's temporary. Seventy years is not forever, right? Seventy years is simply one more than 69, one less than 71. Be careful, because some people say God has absolutely rejected Israel and canceled out his promises to her because of her disobedience. No, he only said, I will remove you if you don't repent for a certain period of time. You want to know uh, the proof that he's kept his word to Israel? 1948. If you have another explanation for how they ended up back in the land, I'd like to know about it. Okay, so anyway... There you have it right there. Now verse 6. And do not go after other gods to serve them and to worship them. And do not provoke me to anger 
with the work of your hands, and I'll do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, in order that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to, to your own harm. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north. You'll see in this context, it's the Babylonians. I will take all of the families of the north, declares the Lord, and I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Wait a second, I must have a misprint. What does your Bible say after king of Babylon? Mine does too. Is that a misprint? King of Babylon, my servant? So did, so did Nebuchadnezzar repent? Did he turn to the true God? Did he say, I'll no longer be an idolater? Did he bow before the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Did he say he's sorry for his sinful ways? So what do you mean? My, God calls Nebuchadnezzar one of the most ferocious, hostile, godless, hard-hearted, ravenous, narcissistic, egomaniacal, political leaders known to humankind. God calls him my servant. Can you please explain that to me? Yes, ma'am. Now, Miss Marjorie says something uh, very interesting and I think accurate. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar took care of the remnant of Israel even while they were in bondage so that they could ultimately return. That is a good point. Charles? Let's move on as quickly as we possibly can. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, please strike that from the record. Yes, ma'am. Yes, God used Nebuchadnezzar as his, tell me if I get this right, as his rod of protection, a correction, excuse me, to, to serve as his instrument of discipline and judgment with regard to wayward Israel. That is interesting. Do you mean to tell me uh, that this God you speak of has the capacity to make use even of an ungodly character like Nebuchadnezzar? So if you believe that, what's another way to put that? It's an attribute of God. God is sovereign. Now you just found out what sovereignty is. God is sovereign. Meaning he's the most high. Meaning the world is divided up by people in leadership, authority figures and all the rest. But the most authoritative is almighty God. Donnie? Oh, this is a good question. Uh, Don is asking, knowing what we happened, in the, uh, knowing what happened in the book of Daniel, is this an example of predestination? I think the answer is yes. But not predestination in the mechanical sense, meaning that human free will has been ruled out. Predestination in this sense, based on God's foreknowledge, he constructed a plan in keeping with the decisions he knows Nebuchadnezzar would make. So he didn't decree what Nebuchadnezzar would do against Nebuchadnezzar's will. Otherwise, how could Nebuchadnezzar be held responsible? He, who is not bound by time, he sees the end from the beginning, knew Nebuchadnezzar would harden his heart. 
And in keeping with it, God hardened his heart. You see? Did the same thing with Pharaoh. He knew how Pharaoh would respond in the face of the commandments. So every time in Exodus where it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart, it also says Pharaoh hardened his heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that somebody have something over here or, or are you disgusted because I left out this section? These are the cheap seats, folks. I, you know, that's, look at here. Look here. This is important. Don't cave in to the day attitudinally so that you look bitter, hostile, angry, cynical, and unattractive to unsaved people. You may be disenchanted by the direction of the nation and of the nations. Legitimate. But don't resort to illegitimate responses. You can vote. You can march. You can speak up. You could stand firm. You can't be disrespectful. You can't be embittered. You can't be unattractive. Because if you do so, you're showing a watching world you really don't believe in the sovereignty of God. If he could make use of this character, Nebuchadnezzar, he could make use of anyone who serves in any capacity. So what do you pray? Well, Timothy says, pray for those in, for kings and all those in authority. Now, I had one lady here told me, I'll, I will never pray. She was referring to a prior president who she didn't like. She said, I will never pray for him. I said, I think you're saying that because you're not understanding what you're supposed to pray for. You do not have to pray that he be re-elected. You do not have to pray uh, that what he stands for meet with favor. You don't have to. What the Timothy passage says is to pray for these that we may leave, uh, live a life in all godliness and dignity. In other words, you pray that in spite of this person's um, directions and maybe unbiblical value system, you pray that God would allow us, even under his or her leadership and administration, to be able to continue living a Christ-centered, godly life which represents a biblical value system. That's what you pray. Listen to me. It's one thing for abortion to be legalized. It's another thing for abortion to be mandated. Do you know the difference? We don't like the legalization of certain um, activity which we find contrary to the Scriptures. But that's a far cry by, uh, from being forced by the government to participate in those practices. Now, we could be. Other people in other countries are forced to do things like that. China, for instance. So, so, so what we want to pray is, oh, God, I pray that this person, even while in his or her position of leadership, would come to know you. I hope you pray for the salvation of those in high positions. Oh, God, under the stress of it all, I pray this person would come to be emptied of self and hear from good counselors who lead this person to you. But then you pray, but if God, if this person is not going to yield to you, then I pray at least that you would so make use of this person as your servant so that your kind intentions 
your intentions to save, your redemptive purposes, your values are still allowed to be practiced by your people in this country. That's what you pray. So for a lady to say, I will not pray for the president, tells me she's just crossed the line from the distinctive Christian response to those in authority. You and I have to find out what is the distinctive Christian response to everything. What's the distinctive Christian response to the lottery? What's the distinctive Christian response to finances? What's the distinctive Christian response to marriage, to child-rearing, to economics, to recreational pursuits? There is a distinctive Christian response to everything. Ask the question, what is the distinctive Christian response to those in authority? It has to be distinct from that which other people are making use of. Cynicism, um, uh, demeaning attitude, uh, disrespect, um, uh, contempt, bitterness, all of that. That is not the distinctive Christian response. Anyone can manifest those things. What's our response? Pray. Fast. Vote. Speak. Sure. Sure. All of that stuff. But be careful of looking like everybody else because then we betray, wow, you are so disturbed. You claim to know the Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. You don't look like you're at rest with regard to his sovereignty at all. Do you see? We are diminishing the effectiveness of our evangelism because we're speaking of a God we don't seem to be benefiting from. Proverbs 21, 1. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Everyone is a servant of vehicle in the hand of God. Uh, you are, I am. Here's the choice. Do it cooperatively or even against your will. Nonetheless, God will put everyone to his use and purposes. You see the difference here? So this helps me to sleep at night. You get upset with evil, with wrongdoing, and all the rest. But so live that people say, yet you're at peace. Somehow you have peace in this economic environment, in this uh, uh, housing environment. Do we? Yet somehow you have peace. Somehow you seem to have something I don't have. Your uh, 401k is diminished just as mine is, and yet you seem to... What is it? And then you make a defense uh, to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Not the bitterness, not the cynicism, not the disrespect. You know, I raised my kids, regardless of what they think of a president, never to refer to him by last name. It is president and whoever the president happens to be. I don't have to respect the person's position, but if I show disrespect to the office, I am showing disrespect to the God who created government. Do you know that? It's an agent in God's hand. He can make use of it. If he could make use of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, good night. He could make use of even those who are in a different political party than the one you affiliate with. Okay, sovereignty of God. King of Babylon, my servant, 
we're back in the middle of verse 9. I'll bring them against this land and against its inhabitants, against all these nations round about, and I'll utterly destroy them. I'll make them a horror, a hissing, an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of joy, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride, the sound of millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon how many years? Why 70? Oh, Miss Marjorie, I am glad you're here. Wow. Right on target. Did you hear what Miss Marjorie said? Okay, good. Then I won't tell you. Oh, this is wonderful, lady. Oh, that is, that is really good. That is really good. Miss Marjorie, I don't like it when you know more stuff than me. Did I ever tell you? Look at here. Let me explain something to you. The 70 years of exile, Babylonian captivity is not arbitrary. It could say 60 years. It could say 80 years. It could say 74 years. It could say 15 years. You know, God doesn't do anything arbitrarily. 70 years of captivity. And, 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 and let me tell you why. Miss Marjorie got it right. Can you turn with me to Leviticus of all places, chapter 25? Leviticus 25. And when you're going there, let me just mention to you, when God called Moses up on Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments, he gave him other stuff too. Here he gave him some directions for the use of the land. Interestingly, the land. Leviticus 25. Take a look at verses 1 to 5. The Lord then spoke to Moses, see, at Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I shall give you, then the land shall have a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its crop. But during the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field nor prune your vineyard. Your harvests after growth you shall not reap. And your grapes of untrimmed vines you shall not gather. The land shall have a sabbatical year. When you think of the Sabbath, you think of the seventh day on which God rested. But don't limit it to that. Sabbath means rest. And so what God said to an agricultural people, work the land for six years. Do not work it on the seventh. Oh, do activities of daily living. However, restrain yourself from this commitment to the same agricultural fervor in the seventh year that you put into the land the first six. Why? If you give the land a rest, you're giving your animals a rest. If you give the land and your animals a rest, you're giving yourself a rest. And God is saying to a uh, uh, a uh, a people previously enslaved, I'm giving you, a previously enslaved people, permission to rest. No enslaved people ever got a day off. Slaves don't get a vacation day. The master doesn't give you a break. You don't have that program. God is saying you're not a slave people anymore. Forget about all that. Live like a free people. How do you live now? No longer as a slave people, but as a people utterly dependent on me. I'm your new master. 
but I will never exploit you or abuse you. So Israel worked really, 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 really hard at doing nothing in the seventh year. You think that's easy to do? It's not. Enter into Sabbath rest in the seventh year. Leave the land alone. Leave the animals alone. Leave it alone. Rest. But then what question do you think the Israelites would ask? But how are we going to eat? That asked the same question. You know, if I don't burn myself out, if I don't work hard, if I don't, it's the same stuff we have. Who's going to provide for me? Who's going to take care of me? Here's the answer. Same chapter, Leviticus 25, verse 18 and on. Leviticus 25, 18 and on. In anticipation of their question, here's what God says. You shall thus observe my statutes and keep my judgments so as to carry them out that you may live securely on the land. Then the land will yield its produce so that you can eat your fill and live securely on it. But if you say, what are we going to eat on the seventh year if we do not sow or gather in our crops? Then I will so order my blessing for you in the sixth year that it will bring forth the crop for three years. You know what God said? Israel, legitimate question. Who's going to take care of us? Here's the answer. Me. In fact, I'm going to so take care of you that I'm going to give you threefold what you need so that in the sixth year, you're going to have enough not only for the sixth year, but also for the seventh and the eighth as well. Now, what's this about? Is it just the environment? Yeah, it's about the environment. Any farmer knows that you've got to give the land a rest. Otherwise, you depleted of nutrients. In the last class, um, a man's wife had a dad used to be a watermelon farmer, and he would never plant in the same place. Because you just deplete the, the land of its nutrients. So absolutely, long before people could go to uh, Texas A&M and learn about the science of agriculture, God knows about these things. So he gave this as an agricultural truth. Give the land a break because it'll actually yield more for you after you do it. But there's more at stake than just environmentalism. Um. It's really hard for us to rest in the goodness and provision of Almighty God. Let's face it. It just is. So safe people seem still to be working for their salvation. It's interesting to me. I do, you do. Saved. But we still seem to be doubtful about God's favor. We still seem to be wanting to jump through his hoops so as to win his positive regard, even though he demonstrated it to us. And we surely, even as Christian people, seem to think if we don't take care of ourselves, who's going to? Even from a material point of view, it's a day of interesting employment and economic horizon in which we, in real estate, realities, and so we wonder. What's going to happen to me? Who's going to provide for me? Please don't misunderstand. Those are normal, understandable things. But we got to move past it really, really, really quick and say, you are. You didn't bring me this far to abandon me in the desert. You took me. I was a person in bondage. You, 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 you freed me from a cruel taskmaster sin. It's penalty. It's empowerment. One day it's very presence. You're bringing me into a land of promise. You are my provider. <clears throat> I am your responsibility. So the writer of Hebrews, whoever it is, says, labor. 
so as to enter into Sabbath rest. Isn't that a bit of an irony? The imperative there is work hard at resting. (coughs) You would think that we would just be glad to rest. No. It's called human pride and arrogance, self-sufficiency, and mainly it's called distrust of the provider. So if I don't burn myself out, worry myself out, depress myself out, if I don't stay up all night worrying about, I mean, out of it. If I'm, if I don't stay on duty, if I, if I don't st- stress out, strain, if I, I don't trust God to meet my needs. Let's face it. That's the way it is. So it isn't about the land. Everything God brings our way is about an enhancement of our dependence on Him. Unemployment, downturn in the economy, Foreclosure in a house, health problems, loss of a loved one. Everything, everything, everything is designed, this side of heaven, to enhance our sense of dependence on him. Why? Because he knows that's a safe place. And he knows he'll come through. He wants us to cling to him for blessing. He wants us to say, oh God, I'm dependent on you and I will not let you go until you provide for me. That's exactly where he wants to be. And so the pains of life cause us to cling to him like never before. So he said, exercise this discipline, Israel. Stop working uh, during this sabbatical year and start trusting me. Watch me come through for you. Could I tell you something sad? We have absolutely no historical record that Israel ever did it. None. As a result, we read this. And it is in Second Chronicles 36, verses 20 and 21. Second Chronicles 36. The Chronicles are a kind of a history of Israel. Look what it says. Second Chronicles 36, verses 20 and 21. Those who had escaped from the sword. That's a reference to the conquest by the Babylonians. Those who had escaped from the sword, they weren't killed. He, Nebuchadnezzar, carried away to Babylon. That's a reference to the exile. And they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. We know historically that the Babylonian Empire was replaced by the Medo-Persian Empire. The Bible is historically accurate. They were servants to him, the Jews were servants to him, Nebuchadnezzar, and to his sons until the rule of the king of Persia, that's Cyrus, to fulfill the word of the Lord, notice, by the mouth of Jeremiah. What word of the Lord through Jeremiah? The very word we're reading here in Jeremiah chapter 25. What's the word? Until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths, all the days of its desolation, It kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. Here's the deal. If Israel went into bondage for seven years so that the land in their absence could finally enjoy 70 years of Sabbath rest, then we know 70 times 7, they were supposed to have a sabbatical year every seven years. If it's 70 years of Sabbath, 70 times 7, as Miss Marjorie said, is 490 years, meaning from the time God gave this directive to Moses on Mount Sinai to the time when the uh, Israelites were carried off into Babylonian captivity was 490 years. 
your God is sovereign over history, over time. He takes his word seriously. There is a consequence for disobeying it. He's very detail-oriented. He's not forgetful. He counts. He numbers. He names. He's aware. He is not an absentee landlord. He is Emmanuel, God with us. When we're up, when we're down, 490 years, uh, the ancient Israelites, we have no record of them ever obeying the directive with regard to the sabbatical year in the seventh year that God ordained. Not once. And so God said, you cannot mock me. The land will have its rest. And so they go off into bondage for 70 years of Sabbaths <laughs> to give the land a rest. It isn't about the land. It's about Israel finding out, you cannot make it without me. You cannot be self-sufficient. You cannot do it your way. It will be my way. My way is best. Father knows best. Do it my way. My way will be done with or without you. I will bring you kicking and screaming into Babylon because you have not done it my way. Oh, you're coming back to the land, but you will temporarily not be able to dwell in it because you use your own sense instead of obeying me. You said, if we do good for six years, we'll really make a profit if we work for seven years. You used your own sense instead of submitting to my word. I'm smarter than you. I know about agriculture. I know about hygiene. I know about economics. I know about relationships. I know about everything. Do it my way. Don't wait to comprehend. Don't wait to understand everything. Can you understand this? You were lost. Wandering about. I saved you. Will I not also give you all things? It's simple. God is using everything to enhance our dependence on him. We are doing everything not to be dependent on him. That's true for Christians as well as non-Christians. Don't do it. The record of God with Israel is not academic. It's not a history lesson. It's remedial care. It's so that we don't do it the way they did it. They didn't need to be in Babylon for 70 years. They could have dwelt in the land. We don't have to be unsettled, unstable, insecure, even in the midst of our salvation. We don't have to be shaken up by every wind of doctrine, by every news article, by every this, that, and the other thing. We don't have to do it. But we really have to do things the Father's way. Trust and obey. For there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. You see? Jeremiah 25 tells us when we don't. You lose your salvation? Nope. You lose the joy of it. Can it be restored? It could. If you've been a Christian on the run from God, turn. Shubu, shebu. Turn and dwell securely in the land. Repent and dwell securely in the land. Yeah. So, Lord Jesus, you've invited us not only to be pardoned, but to also be adopted as children.
dependent on an Abba Father who provides. You expose us to circumstances that enhance our sense of dependence on you. We will not depend voluntarily. You allow things to come into our life that obligate us to, so as to find out you can be trusted. You are trustworthy. You haven't disappointed us. You haven't let us down. You haven't abandoned us. Oh, God, please break in us the pattern of self-reliance, self-sufficiency, and our own thinking, which militates against submission to your will. Father, you know best. We will do your will. We repent. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Blessings to you folks. Lord willing, we'll pick up next week where we left off this week.